Now, if you will, let's take out our Bibles and let's go to Ephesians once again. Today we're in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. We'll cover verses 1 through 13 today. About 20 years ago, there was a young filmmaker and screenwriter from India that skyrocketed to fame and kind of took Hollywood by storm. And he became known as the man who made movies with twist endings. His name was M. Night Shyamalan. His movies such as The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs left audiences spellbound as they walked out of the theater. Because all the endings were huge surprises and you didn't see them coming. I remember being in the theaters one time with Jennifer. We were very young and um, I'd say we were probably seeing a movie that wasn't even his. It, it, the movie we, weren't, we were seeing wasn't his. But there was a preview and it was one of those teaser trailers, if you will, you know, very short. And, and the, this dark, ominous music starts coming up and, and you see these kind of blurry pictures of things. You don't really know what, what it is in this preview. But all of a sudden, toward the end of the preview, even though you're kind of totally confused as to what's going on, his name pops up. It says, from M. Night Shyamalan. And it was electric in the theater because people knew, you know, like, oh, it's his movie. We've got to go see that. I can't wait till this comes out, right? That preview for that movie, that movie ended up being a dud. I mean, it was horrible. It was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But it was electric in the theater that day when his name popped up on the screen. And you know it was coming from him. This movie's going to be his. He ended up making some other real duds on top of that one, but man, oh man, those first few movies, they were just mind-boggling. And, and they were mysteries. And the fun part of it was unraveling the mystery or trying to figure it out. That was the fun part, right? Well, the, the New Testament speaks of the gospel, the gospel itself as a mystery hidden for ages, but finally revealed in Jesus Christ. We could spend all day talking about the mysteries of God, could we not? There's the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of God's self-existence, or the mystery that is the book of Revelation. But today we're going to look at the great mystery of the gospel, which has already had its big reveal, its big twist ending, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so let's go to our text, Ephesians 3. I'll be reading from verse 1 down to verse 13 for our text today. This is the word of God through the Apostle Paul. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Today in our text, I want to look at four aspects of this mystery of the gospel. You might say we're looking at four mysteries within the mystery. There's the mystery of the gospel over all of this, and we're going to look at within that mystery of the gospel, four mysteries within the mystery. The first comes in verses 3 through 5, and it is the mystery of Scripture. Paul speaks of the mystery of Scripture in verses 3 through 5. And you'll notice, if you pay attention here in these verses, a progression. You'll notice a progression that Paul gives us. And here's how it goes. It's a fourfold progression. First, the first step in this is that there is a mystery that only God knows. That's the first step. There's a mystery that only God knows. But the second step is that God reveals it to certain men, apostles and prophets. Look at verse 5. It says, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It has now been revealed. The mystery has been revealed to the apostles and prophets. You'll see that reveal language in verse 3 as well. Notice in verse 3 how he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. The same root word there, reveal. Revelation. You know, Revelation is not just the last book in the Bible. The entire Bible is Revelation. That's what the Bible is when you really think about it. The entire Bible is God revealing himself to us who could not have known him like that in any other way. The entire Bible is Revelation. It is so fitting that the Bible begins with God in the beginning God. It sets the tone right from the beginning that this book, this entire book, is not about you. It's about God. And the entire Bible is just that, God revealing himself to his people in a way that they can understand. The entire Bible is God saying, this is who I am and this is how you're to respond to who I am. It's all revelation. Now, notice there in verse 5 how it said, It was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. We've actually seen this phrase already in the book of Ephesians. Look back with me at chapter 2. We looked at this last week. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. There it says, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so... 2 verse 20, chapter 3 verse 5 right here, these apostles and prophets, what he's talking about is the writings of Holy Scripture. The church is built on the Bible. It's built on the revelation that God has given to his apostles and prophets, and they have written it down, which is step three in our progression here. The first step was there's a mystery only God knows. The second Verses 5 and verse 3 even, 
that God has revealed it to his apostles and prophets. And third, those people wrote it down. Paul even says this in verse 3. This mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. They wrote it down. And after they wrote it down, they give it out. And our final step in the progression is that people read it and perceive it as God's word. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. God has entrusted this mystery to human authors who wrote it down in a book for us to read. And as we read it, we perceive that it is God's word, that it is God's mystery that is being revealed to us. We perceive that as we read. Now, not all perceive it. It takes a certain heart opened by God himself, opened by Jesus Christ to perceive the mystery of God in the scriptures. But if you know, you know. If you've read and you've experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You read scripture and it's almost like you can't even explain it to other people in words that would make sense. It's like you can't defend it, but you know beyond the shadow of a doubt this is God speaking. These are not just the words of Paul or John or Moses or David. This is God himself speaking through those men. And I'm reading the very words of God. Now, it's really important that we don't just gloss over verse 4 where he says, when you read this, when you read this. There's a couple implications there. Number one, do you read this? Are you reading God's word? God just assumes, Paul just assumes, they're expecting that we will read it. Are we reading God's word? Yes, we just did. Yes, you just heard it. But what about you? What about in your own life? Are you reading God's word? Because if it really is God's word, there is nothing like this book in in all of the world. If it really is God's word, there is nothing like the Bible. When you read this. Now, there's a second implication there, though, and it's the importance of reading. It's the importance of reading. Reading itself and the skill of reading is so very important because God has revealed himself to us in a book. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I'm not much of a reader, John, and that's fine. Okay, you don't have to read all kinds of different books. I love to read. I'll read almost anything. But you don't have to be an avid reader. You don't have to read all kinds of different books. But to be a Christian and to follow Jesus, you must be a reader and a student of one book. Throw out all the other books in the world. If you're not a reader, that's fine. You must be a reader and a student of one book. Even if it's through having it read aloud to you, right? There are illiterate people in the history of of the church who have followed Jesus and pursued God through hearing the word, right? They couldn't even read. But most of the people I'm speaking to today are not like that. We're literate. We can read, or at least we have the ability to read words on a page and to understand them in an elementary level. But for thousands of years... For thousands of years, it has been Christians 
who have been on the forefront of establishing schools and literacy programs all across the world throughout history. Why? Because God revealed himself to us in a book for us to read. The Bible is a book and the world's greatest need is to know the truths found in this book. The world's greatest need is to know the truths found in this book. And so Christians establish schools and literacy programs, and Christians are working feverishly to translate the Bible into all kinds of different languages and get it out to these people who don't have the Word of God. Why? Because the world's greatest need is to know the truths found in this book. And God has revealed himself. It's a wonder. He's revealed himself to us in a book that we can read. And, and the glory of living where we do is we can read it anytime we wish. And so we teach our children to read. And the greatest reason, brothers and sisters, that we teach our children to read is because the Bible is a book. But us adults, too, we have to be good readers. We need to learn to read well, not just the ability to read a word and sound it out, but the ability to discern the author's meaning. I'm going to brag about my daughter for just a second. My daughter cannot read all of the words in every book there is, right? She's learning to read, but her ability to perceive the author's meaning already outstrips her ability to read the actual words, right? She's got this just ability to perceive what's going on in the book, even under the surface. We've got to get good at that as adults. We have to discern the author's meaning. We have to grow in the skill of understanding when an author is employing sarcasm or symbolism or logic so that we can read things like the Gospels on the one hand and then turn around the week after and be reading the Psalms, which is much different in genre, right? And understand how to interpret them rightly. The skill of reading cannot be undervalued for Christians because the Bible is a book and God has given it to us to understand. So if you're not a reader, that's fine, right? You don't have to read a bunch of different books, but to follow Christ, you must be a student of one book. And so it's the mystery of Scripture first. Second, this second mystery within the mystery of the gospel, we find in verse 6. It's the mystery of the new covenant. The mystery of the new covenant. Now, authors of mystery novels who master their craft can provide their readers with all the necessary information as the story goes along. But they do it in a way that makes it very difficult for us to solve the crime or the mystery as we're reading the story, right? We've got all the information there. We just can't solve it because they're good. They're, they're good authors of mystery novels. But once you've reached the end, if you've ever read some of these mystery novels, once you've reached reach the end and you've experienced the big reveal, well, on rereadings, you can see how the author has hidden all the clues in plain sight. And so mystery novels often offer a lot on rereadings, as do those mystery movies that we talked about. You can see the clues. They were right there the whole time. I just didn't see them because I didn't know the end of the mystery. I didn't know how to solve it. Well, this is what God has done with the Old Testament. This is what God has done with the Old Testament. 
the hidden mystery, the hidden mystery of the gospel for so many years was that all of the Old Testament ceremonies, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, the mystery was it was temporary. The mystery was it was always intended to be temporary. The nation of Israel and all of its ceremonial ways of worshiping God and relating to God, they were always intended to be temporary. But it was a mystery that we didn't know until Jesus came and revealed the mystery in its fullness. It was all, all of the Old Covenant was temporary until the proper time for Jesus to come. They were shadows pointing ahead to the reality that would come true in Christ. But once Jesus came, it changed everything. Once Jesus came, it changed everything. Stephen talked about it just a moment ago in our communion meditation, right? No longer do we need a high priest on earth to mediate between us and God. We can go straight to God ourselves through Christ. No longer does God dwell in a temple behind a curtain that that the high priest can only go into once a year. No one else can go back there. And if you do, you die because of the presence of God. No, the, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two when Jesus breathed his last. No longer does God require animal sacrifices because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin, the only true sacrifice that could take away sins. And no longer do Jews have special access to God. We talked about this last week. While the Gentile world is left out, it's no longer true anymore. Jesus' death opened it up to all. And no longer is it enough to come to God the Father in general. It's not enough to just come to God in general. You have to come to him through his approved means, through his son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't just come to God in general anymore. You've got to come to Jesus. He's the only way to get to God. You can't have God without Christ. And so all this to say that the old covenant was there intentionally as a temporary thing pointing ahead to the new covenant that would one day replace it. The mystery of the gospel included this mystery that when Jesus came, everything would change. Everything would change. God himself does not change, but the way that we relate to him has changed since Old Testament times. It's a mystery the new covenant is. In verses 7 and 8, we find the third mystery within the mystery, the mystery of grace. The mystery of grace. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And then watch, watch what he says in verse 8. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I read that and I struggle with that sometimes. Because this is Paul we're talking about. Saint Paul, as he is sometimes called. Paul, the author of half of the New Testament books of the Bible. Paul, it seems like one of the greatest minds God has ever placed on this earth. Paul, who who went through so much suffering for Jesus and never gave up his faith and preached the gospel to so many churches and was a missionary and planted all these churches. And he says in verse 8, he's the least 
of all the saints? Him? Paul? Now, interestingly enough, he says this kind of thing elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says he's the least of all the apostles. 15.29. 1 Corinthians 15.29. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says he is the foremost of all sinners. Out of all the sinners on all the planet, I'm, I'm the foremost of them all. I sin the most. And this is Paul we're talking about. But notice the beauty here. The beauty of God's grace. That Paul is genuinely in awe that God would use him. He can't believe it. He can't believe that God would use him to do this. That God's gift of grace to make him a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. He cannot believe it. Why would God use a guy like me? He's just flabbergasted. I have never stopped feeling that it is astounding that a girl like Jennifer would want to marry a guy like me. I, I will never stop being astounded at that, right? The moment, the moment someone told me that she was interested in me, I almost got upset because I thought they were playing a cruel, cruel joke. And I still feel like that sometimes. Cannot believe it. Why? Why, why? why me? Her and me? Jennifer actually saw somebody the other day in Bowling Green that, that we haven't seen since like high school. And, and she said, yeah, I'm, I'm married to John Davis. And that guy was like, you are married to him? Right? They, they literally couldn't believe it. This is not like a, you know, a joke I'm making up for the sermon. This is real. Like, don't understand why. But, but may I never lose that, right? May I never lose that. May I never stop appreciating that, that God has just given me this amazing gift of, of the wife that I have when I really, really don't deserve it. But Paul felt like that with his grace that, that God gave him. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that God would use somebody like him. And this is Paul we're talking about. But it makes sense when you stop and you think, the only person who knew the depths of the sin of Paul was God and Paul. Nobody else knew the depths and the darkness of Paul's heart but Paul, right? He understands. When he looks out to the rest of the world, he doesn't know the depths and the darkness of the sin of anybody else, but he knows his own. And so he says, I'm the foremost of all sinners. I'm the least of all saints. In Philippians 2, 3, that same Paul wrote this. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I read that with a lot of weight because I know Paul actually lived it out. He believed it. He believed other people were more significant than himself. And he goes on to say the ultimate person who's done this is Jesus. Jesus who came from heaven and was equal with God but didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself a servant. He washed his disciples' feet. He went lower than everybody else. He considered other people more significant than himself and put their needs and their comforts ahead of his own. Well, Paul was living this out. And he truly understands the mystery of grace. It's a mystery that God would use a person like me. You see, the gospel destroys any sense of superiority that we might have over other people. The gospel shows us simultaneously the extreme depths of our sin 
and the extraordinary heights of undeserved grace that we have received from God. As one preacher that I often listen to likes to say, the gospel shows you that you are more sinful than you ever imagined, but you are also more loved than you ever dared to believe. And both those things are true. We need both, right? You're more sinful than you thought. When you come to face up to the Bible, you start to realize, oh, there, there's, there's a, a depth and a level to my sin. I'm peeling back the onion. I never knew how sinful I was. When I, when I read scripture, I start to understand. But at the same time, the grace that God has given you and his love for you and the forgiveness that he offers and the gift of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, you are more loved than you ever dared to imagine. And so, it's a mystery. It's a mystery that God would punish his own son for a sinner like me. For someone who has done all the things that I have done. And so, like Paul, the more we mature and grow in Christ, the more in awe we should be that God would save someone like us. The more you grow in Christ, the more in awe you should become of God's grace to you the more you should feel like, like Paul here. I'm, I'm the worst. I've got to be the worst. And if, if God could save somebody like me, well, he can save anybody. That, that should be how the gospel flows out of us. I know me, and if God could save me, he could save you guys. I know it. Because he saved me. And it took an extraordinary amount of grace for him to save me. Right? The, the more we mature and grow in Christ, the more we should feel that. The more in awe we should be of the mystery of God's grace. Finally, we come to verse 10, which shows us the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church in verse 10. Now, let me read verse 10 to you. It says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now notice what Paul is saying here, because it's extraordinary. In Ephesians, we've already seen, and we will see again, this phrase, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, right? And it refers to Satan and demons. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places are Satan and his demons. And what Paul is saying here in verse 10 is that it is through the church the church that God declares the mystery of the gospel to Satan and his demons. The way that God declares the mystery of the gospel is through the church. That's the way he declares it to Satan and his demons. The church of Jesus Christ is much more than a place where people come to sing and hear a sermon on Sundays. The church is much more then whatever place you decide has your kind of preaching and your kind of music and your kind of contemporary traditional worship, the church, the body of Christ, is like a huge diamond on display at a museum set up by God himself. And it's sitting there behind bulletproof glass. Glass that no one can get past because it's God's bulletproof glass. And Satan and his demons are filing past, 
looking at that diamond, seeing the way it refracts and reflects the light of the wisdom of God. Notice how it said in verse 10, it's the manifold wisdom of God, the many-sided wisdom of God. So think about a diamond with all of its little facets all of the sides, refracting and reflecting the light in different ways. And as Satan and his demons are paraded by that diamond behind bulletproof glass, they can't believe it. And they hate it. And they want to destroy it, but they can't do anything because it's protected by the protection of God himself. This is the church. The church is on display by God to the powers and the rulers in the heavenly places to show off God's wisdom. God is using us to make Satan and his demons marvel at his wisdom and they can't do anything about it. 1 Peter 1 verse 12 talks about those prophets that were writing scripture and in 1 Peter 1 12 it says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and then watch what he says, things into which angels long to look. There is a sense in which what God is doing in the church on the earth with human beings, angels and demons and Satan himself are looking down at it in wonder. And they see the wisdom of God in a way that they don't see it any way else. They can't believe it. This is what God is doing. Look at the wisdom and the glory of God because of of this, the church. Because of these people. How does the church do this? Well, the church is the place where God saves sinners. The church is where human beings cross over from death to life. It's where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of those who have been baptized into Christ. And angels and demons marvel to see it. The church is a gospel culture where the death and resurrection of Jesus make a concrete difference in the lives of imperfect, sinful people. The Bible tells us that we have a treasure inside of us, but it's a treasure that's been put in jars of clay, our bodies, right? These jars of clay that we have, they're, they're imperfect, they're fragile, they have all of these weaknesses, and yet there's a treasure inside that is worth so much more than any of the jars that it is put within. And Satan and his demons and even angels are looking down at the church of Jesus Christ in awe and wonder at the wisdom of God and what he is doing. What a privilege to be a part of something That even angels and demons marvel to witness. The church is a family made up of all kinds of different groups that last week we talked about. These these groups should hate each other. They should be avoiding one another. And yet they lay down their preferences and even their lives for one another. And then Satan and his demons look and they say, what? They marvel at it and then they hate it. And then they can't do a thing about it. Because Jesus says, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's us. That's what we're a part of. And it's not because we are so great or we are so strong. It's not us. It's Christ in us. 
It's Christ building this church with himself as the cornerstone on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Holy scripture that God does this thing that spiritual beings look down and marvel at. It's such a privilege to be a part of it. And so this is the mystery of the gospel. The, the fourfold mystery of the gospel, you might say, from our text today. The mystery of scripture. The mystery of the new covenant. The mystery of grace and the mystery of the church. All to say the gospel itself is a mystery, but it's a mystery that's already had its big reveal. Already had its big twist ending in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was a mystery until that happened, but we're on the other side of that mystery. And like those mystery novels, like those mystery movies, it's got a lot of rewatch value. We're on the other side of it. We know what's already happened, but we're seeing it play out and we know the end. We're in the middle of it and we know the end. What a blessing to be a part of that. Do you want in on this? If you have not been born again, do you want in on this? This is the great culmination of all of human history. It's going toward the judgment of God upon the earth. Are you ready for that? We prayed earlier today that Jesus would come soon. But at the same time, there are people in this church and all across the world who are praying that he wouldn't come soon. That he would and that he wouldn't. Why? We pray that he would because the suffering. That he would end the suffering of this world. That we could go be with Jesus in heaven forever. But there's another side of us that prays, but wait a second, not yet. I've got friends, I've got family members who don't know Jesus. And God's patience in not sending Jesus is a patience that is waiting for more to come into the kingdom, for more to step into safety so that they will not be condemned eternally in hell. Don't be part of that group. We're going to spend some time praying right now. As we pray each week after our sermon, we we spend some time in silent prayer. And what this is, is it's a time of response to the Lord. And so instead of just asking that whoever wants to come forward and respond, which we will do here in a second, right now we ask that every single one of you, every single one of us, respond to what God has just put on our hearts. Every single one of us respond to the word that we have just heard from the Lord. And so we spend this time right now in silent prayer, individual response. You go reckon with God and face up to whatever he's given you. And then we'll come back together. We'll have a time of public response where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so. Right now, let's pray for a few moments.